Madam Principal and Dr. Muddiman and friends and guests, it's a great joy and privilege for me to be here today. And, and having had the mention of the House of Lords, this is of course what it feels like all the time. You're talking to people behind the back of your head. So uh, uh, it was you. It was you all, all that time and I never realized. Well, I sort of did. Um, yeah. Uh, especially, it's an honor to be able to, to, to inaugurate the C.H. Dodd uh, lecture. Uh, obviously, I didn't know Dodd personally, but through George Caird, I did feel I had a sort of uh, grandson-like relationship uh, with him. And as always in families, there are interesting questions and points of tension, as well as deep gratitude. Particularly, this isn't always pointed out for Dodd as a Roman historian, which is where his first articles were in the Journal for Roman History, uh, Journal of Roman Studies. I think, um, and, and all his work was rooted in a deep historical scholarship, a deep awareness of what was actually going on in the first century, and that which George Caird again passed on to John and me and many, many others is, is something which I shall always be grateful for, and this place, of course, was right uh, at the center of George's own heart uh, from the time when he was principal here, but he never lost, of course, his deep interest in the love of the college, even when he was forced to move as professor to Queen's. Actually, it may not be known, but it may be worth saying that when George was asked to be professor, uh, since Mansfield was not at that stage a full college of the university, George asked the general board if maybe he would be allowed, which was normally against the regulations, to go on being principal of Mansfield while being professor. And the general board said, no, you can't. Um, for the, in, in this uh, way, Mansfield actually counts as a full college. And so then it was discovered that George's country house out at Wantage was just outside the radius that uh, professors were supposed to live within, but that was as the car drives, and George pointed out that as the crow flies, it was just within the radius, and he said to the general board that on this occasion professors should be deemed to be crows, and so it was. They, they relented on that. Anyway, homage to two great men, and especially, of course, to Dodd himself. The problem I want to tackle today is one I met when I was a teenager. I was helping to run a small Christian study group at the school where I was uh, studying, and we decided to have a series one term covering key things about Jesus. Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus live? Why did Jesus die? Why did he rise? Why will he return? I drew the short straw. Why did Jesus live? I quickly realized that the other ones would have actually been easier. I knew already a little about incarnation, atonement, resurrection, second coming. What about that stuff in the middle? Frustratingly, I have absolutely no idea now what I said at the age of 15. I wish I could find the notes somewhere, but they're long gone. I met the same problem from a different angle about 10 years later when I was asked to speak to the Student Christian Union in Cambridge on the title, quote, The Gospel in the Gospels, plural, unquote. Within the Protestant and Evangelical world, one was taught that the gospel, the good news of God's love in Jesus' death and the free grace by which we are saved through faith, is something quite different from the gospels, plural. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Indeed, to our surprise, though there are one or two verses such as John 3.16 and Mark 10.45, the four Gospels don't appear to say very much about what Protestants and Evangelicals have meant by the Gospel. 
I assume you all know John 3.16. Mark 10.45 is the famous line where Jesus speaks of the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom for many. John 3.16, I was once coming through customs into America, and they're always rather suspicious, and this is about seven or eight years ago, and uh, the customs man said, so, so what do you do? And I said, actually, I'm a bishop. Um, oh, bishop, hey, are you, what does John 3.16 say? Which was... <laughs> sorry. Where he was, I knew where he was coming from, so thinking quickly on my feet, I said, Hutes Gare Gapisan Hotheoston Cosmon, which is not quite what he was expecting, but I explained. Um, so, so the gospel and the gospels. Yes, there is a passage in Luke where Jesus speaks about someone being justified, but it's in a parable, doesn't appear to be thematic for the narrative as a whole. So, what's going on? What does the gospel have to do with the gospels? or vice versa. In fact, this prob problem is not confined to Protestantism. Worryingly, it is instantiated accidentally even in the great creeds of Catholic Christendom. Of course, the creeds were drafted in order to highlight points where there had been tension, where the church resolved on something, and then this is where we are, or all now are. But when the creeds began to be used as a teaching syllabus, which was not their original intention, then the problem begins, because, of course, the creeds, as you know, go, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, the same. And I have a mental image at that point of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John standing there and saying, excuse me, we spent a long time talking about that stuff in the middle, and you just skip over it like that? Now, I stress to forestall objections, which I understand are already out there on one or two blog sites, that this is not in any way a criticism of the great creeds. I love them and say them ex animo. But they have been misused, as the most sound and orthodox material can be misused, in this case to encourage a reading of the New Testament in which the main body of the Gospels is not theologically load-bearing. For many Christians, it would have been quite sufficient if Jesus of Nazareth had been born of a virgin, died on a cross, and never done anything else in between. The four Gospels then function simply as the dispensable backstory for the Gospel as preached by Paul. As a friend of mine put it, they are the optional pre-prandial nibbles, the chips and dips, before we go to the table and sit down for the red meat of Pauline theology. This is the de facto position of many Protestants and Evangelicals, the irony, of course, being that it is exactly the position of Rudolf Bultmann, who many in today's Evangelical world regard as more than just a bit dangerous. The only real difference is that Bultmann saw most of the stories as pious fictions, but the reason why most Evangelicals would differ is not to inquire what the stories were actually about, but simply to shore up a view of the inspiration of Scripture. Not for the only time, swathes of would-be Bible-believing Christians are more anxious to protect a theory of Scripture than to hear what Scripture actually says. In addition, the one mention of the kingdom in the creeds themselves gives people a strong hint that the kingdom is something that will only happen right at the end of the narrative. You will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Okay, that's fine. The kingdom is the ultimate. We talk about kingdom come, meaning the far distant future. Granted, people who say the creed also usually say the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. My impression is for most people too, that is thought of as a prayer for the ultimate future. 
And when I've asked, as I have done quite often, groups of clergy and others what they think the middle bits are all about, I receive some interestingly shallow answers. Jesus was teaching us how to go to heaven, say some. He was giving us his new ethical system, say others. Others highlight his extraordinary example of love, self-giving, pastoral shrewdness, and so on. Some will say that the main point of the whole thing was that Jesus was revealing that he was the divine son of God, come to rescue us from this earth, without realizing that that's basically Gnosticism, again shades of Bultmann. And within Catholicism, people have often assumed that Jesus simply came to, quote, found the church, unquote, and they leave it at that. Of course, there have been many who've done it the other way, partly in reaction to this creedal framework with the missing middle. Plenty of liberal theologians have cut off the birth stories at one end and Jesus' death and resurrection at the other, making Jesus simply the great social worker, being kind to old ladies, stray dogs and small children. Or perhaps he was Jesus the revolutionary, starting a proto-Marxist movement for workers' rights. Or perhaps he was a cynic-style teacher of a cryptic wisdom, helping people to find more integrity in their difficult lives. And with all of these, there is an implicit critique of the creedal tradition. The central bits of the Gospels then suddenly become what matters, and the rest can be disposed of. Um, it was just so much later theology added in by the church to tone down the uncomfortable truth of just what a remarkable, creative, um, uh, challenging teacher Jesus was, rather than somebody whose divinity and atoning death would save us from the harsh realities of this world. There were lots of books in the 60s and, and 70s with titles like Jesus Who Became Christ trying to make that point, often written by people escaping their conservative Protestant or Catholic past. Jesus the good liberal was what such folk wanted. Rumors of angels and spooky stuff like that were just so much distraction from what was for them the main thrust. And there is indeed a danger that those who fo follow the creedal formulae will forget what the Gospels in their center really were all about, and may then indeed use that truncated, would-be creedal form of Christianity as an escape from reality. But the challenge of the four Gospels hits hard at both these polarized positions. What's more, it hits hard at the entire implicit construct of the post-Enlightenment Western world. That's the underlying problem we face. The main thing that the post-Enlightenment world, both Christian and non-Christian, has not wanted to hear, let alone to face, was the challenge of theocracy, the news that God has actually become king. And that's precisely what the four Gospels are trying to tell us. Now, it was to avoid this that the radical scholars of the 18th century and since have insisted that Jesus was himself actually a failure. Either he was trying to start a revolution, which didn't pan out, or he was prophesying the end of the world, and that didn't happen either. One way or another, Jesus' intended project came to nothing, whereupon, in that retelling, his followers told the story in a different light, explaining that he was in fact the divine son who had saved sinners by his death and resurrection, and they founded Christianity, so these scholars said, on that fiction. Orthodox Christians from the 18th century to the present have responded, no, no, that's wrong. Jesus really was the divine son of God. He really did die for the world's sins and rise again. But that response, which you find in a thousand earnest orthodox rebuttals of liberal constructs, often misses the point as well. 
Indeed, the more we go through the 19th and 20th centuries, the more we find the orthodox Jesus detached from the real world, leaving a gaping hole which liberation theology has then tried to plug. That's another story. But my point is that just as radical post-enlightenment thought has not wanted Jesus to be in charge of the world, and so has made the Gospels out to be fraudulent orthodox post, or fraud, to be fraudulent, sorry, orthodox post-enlightenment thought has not wanted Jesus to have a political message, and so has likewise misread and misunderstood the Gospels, which are, after all, all about how God became king on earth as in heaven and has remained king ever since. Now, I know, and you know, the answer to that, which has come throughout the last two millennia. It's obvious God isn't in charge. Look out of the window, read the newspaper, watch the television. Can't you tell? If God was in charge, the world wouldn't look like this. We all know the liberal and the orthodox responses to that. The liberals say, ah, oh, well, we have to build the kingdom ourselves now. And the orthodox say, no, the kingdom consists in spiritual fellowship with Jesus now, and ultimate fellowship with him in heaven. But again, if we are to read the Gospels for all they're worth, none of this will quite do. So what are we going to do? My central proposal, which I work out in the book in much more detail, into a fresh reading of the Gospels, is that there are four strands running right through to which we have to pay fresh attention. I want you to imagine that you're moving into a new house and that you have decided to install a splendid new sound system in your living room. You're going to have four loudspeakers, one in each corner. Now, as you know, a good recording will give you a different angle on the music from each corner. If you listen to a symphony orchestra, violins are coming maybe over here, woodwind over there, brass and timpani over there, cellos and basses there, so it feels as if you're actually in the middle of the orchestra. It's a very exciting and dramatic place to be. But what you have to do is to adjust the volume on each of the fallout speakers to make sure you've got the balance right. My case to you now is that there are four loudspeakers we need to adjust as we listen to the Gospels, two of which have usually been turned up too loud, so that the music is distorted, and two of which have been turned down so low as to be almost entirely inaudible, so that most contemporary readers don't even realize they exist. I'm going to start with one of the ones that's been turned off more or less altogether. This first loudspeaker is the one from which we hear a strange, powerful old melody. All four Gospels, in their very different ways, are written to tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth as the climax and fulfillment of the story of Israel. You may be surprised to be told that this one's been switched off. Don't we believe that what Jesus did was in fulfillment of the Scriptures? Did not C.H. Dodd write a brilliant book according to the Scriptures? Well, yes. But we have mostly regarded that as Jesus fulfilling this or that ancient prophecy as a detached, dehistoricized nugget of spiritual foresight floating through time and, as it were, suddenly landing on Jesus. That's not what the Gospels are saying. The four Gospels, despite their differences, emerge from the world of Second Temple Judaism in which the ancient story of God and God's people had not come to a stop. It was still going, though in a dark and puzzled mode. The exile of five centuries earlier had not really come to an end. 
Daniel 9 declared it would take 490 years for the exile to end. Many in Jesus' day were doing their sums and trying to calculate when that would be. And the four Gospels all say, each in their own way, this is the time, the moment has come. The way they narrate the story of Jesus shows how this works. Matthew's genealogy is a single long story, the story of a family from Abraham to Jesus, pausing at David and at the exile as the intermediate moments which give significance to what is to come. Mark opens his gospel with quotations from Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, both of which look ahead in Israel's history to the time when the exile will truly be over. This will be the new exodus, the new release from slavery. Luke begins with a story which echoes 1 Samuel and declares that the ancient prophecies are at last coming true. God has visited and redeemed his people as he promised to Abraham. And Luke ends... And again, shades of Dodds according to the scriptures, with Jesus explaining first on the road to Emmaus and then in the upper room that everything in the scriptures had now come true. This was how the story was always supposed to end, even though nobody had realized it till that point. John, as usual, standing magisterially alone, has Jesus recapitulating and bringing to their appropriate climax more or less all the major strands of Old Testament narrative, from creation to exodus with the divine glory coming to take up residence in our midst, from Moses and Torah to temple and sacrifice. Now, throughout all this, I suspect that one of the reasons why this loudspeaker has been turned right down is that since at least the Middle Ages, the Western Church hasn't known what to do with this theme. Why should it matter to us to tell the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of, Je of Israel? Isn't that just a historical accident? People sometimes say, would it have mattered if Jesus had been born in Africa in the 15th century instead of in Israel in the first or whatever? Isn't it enough to know that there were a few ancient prophecies which were fulfilled? No. The point of the entire biblical narrative is that the creator God called Israel to rescue the human race from its disaster. And so to rescue creation itself from its disaster. God made humans to be stewards of creation and has never rescinded that project. God called Israel to be the family through whom the world would be rescued and he never rescinded that project either, despite the fact that he knew from the start that Israel, the promise-bearing people, would also be part of the problem. And that is what gives a dark and tragic shape and body to the whole narrative and indeed spice to Pauline theology. But each of the evangelists insists in his own way that Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to bring that great narrative to its conclusion at last. He came as the climax of the narrative of Samuel and Kings, coming as the true king with authority over the temple and with the commission to restore the fortunes of God's people. He came as the climax of the narrative of Chronicles, coming as the true priest to offer Israel's God the true, pure worship. The two vocations converge on the cross as the king of the Jews is also the ultimate sacrifice. But these stories in their original biblical framework, which of course includes the Psalms very importantly, are also about the way in which Israel's God is becoming king not just of Israel but of the whole world. And the Gospels faithfully reflect that too. Jesus is enthroned as King of the Jews and Lord of the world. As Messiah, he draws Israel's story to its proper, proper climax. 
as the crucified Messiah, he establishes, even while radically subverting all expectations about how the story would end and what role the true king would have. That is the story the Gospels are telling. That's what we hear when we turn this first loudspeaker up to its proper volume. The second loudspeaker has usually in Western Christianity been turned up far too loud. The second loudspeaker tells the story of Jesus as the story of Israel's God, the creator in human form. The trouble here is that most Christians have regarded it as axiomatic that Jesus was and is divine, but they have come with a distorted view of who or what God is. The word God is heard today in Western culture as referring to a distant deist divinity who might have made the world in the first place and who might or might not reach in sometimes and stir the pot from the outside, producing what are then called miracles, events with no natural cause. So for many, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus as the story of God incarnate, but with the wrong God the deist God, or even an Epicurean God, doing the impossible, becoming human though everybody knows he shouldn't and can't, floating through history six inches above reality, dispensing miracles and wisdom and supernatural salvation. The trouble with this distortion, like a loudspeaker whose crackling and hissing uh, drowns out everything else, is that you can't hear the rest of the music and then it begets a reaction. Many people in the churches and outside them have heard that distorted, shrill sound. Oh yes, Jesus was divine, etc., etc. And have said in reaction, actually I think Jesus was just a good man with some great ideas and a real generosity of spirit. And though they have officially denied Christian teaching, they have glimpsed something true. That the reaction is, of course, just as damaging as the distortion. Happily, I think, biblical scholarship is at last recovering its nerve. I wouldn't dare to imply that there was anything like a consensus at the moment. Consensuses don't happen, I think, in biblical scholarship anymore, which is probably a good thing. But after generations of being told that John had a high Christology and the synoptics had a low one, we are at last recognizing that the story of God himself, as told in the Old Testament, is seen in the Gospels as reaching its own climax. Here's the trick. In the Old Testament... God abandons Jerusalem and the temple and the land at the time of the exile. At no point does anybody say he's come back. They say he will come back. Nobody, there's no scene in Second Temple Judaism corresponding to 1 Kings 8 when Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory of the Lord comes and fills the house. But all four Gospels are saying in their different ways, this has happened at last. We didn't think it would look like this. But that's what we saw in Jesus. The Lord whom you seek promises Malachi will suddenly come to his temple. And they say, here we are, it's happened. We shouldn't be surprised then when Mark's Jesus forgives sins and stills storms, doing exactly, down to verbal echoes, what in scripture Israel's God himself does. Nor should we be surprised when Luke's Jesus comes to Jerusalem and, to explain the significance of the moment, tells stories about a king who had gone away but is now at last coming back. Jesus says, Luke 19.44, you didn't know the time of your visitation. In other words, when God was coming back at last. Matthew makes similar moves. Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us. And when at the end Jesus says, I am with you always, we get the point. 
John, as usual, has his own matchless way of telling the story. The word became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled, eskenosen, in our midst. And we gazed on his glory. Echoes of the end of Exodus, echoes of the end of Ezekiel, etc. The glory has returned at last, though nobody thought it would look like this when it did. Once we recover in our minds not only the biblical picture of who God is, but the biblical narrative of what God is up to, we see that the four evangelists are telling the story of Jesus without crackling or shrill distortion as the astonishing story of how this God has returned to his people. And the meaning is then clear. This God hasn't just come back in order to say, well, I'm back. Isn't that nice? This God has come back in order to be king. How lovely on the mountains, says Isaiah in a passage echoed in the New Testament, are the feet of the ones who proclaim good news, who say to Zion, your God reigns. He's in charge. That is the gospel, the good news, which it takes all four entire books to tell. And Jesus draws this second theme to its proper climax, not, not by striding around being divine all over the place, as it were, but by embodying and acting out the ancient vision of the covenant God as the merciful, self-giving God. Who would have thought, says the prophet, gazing on the servant of the Lord, that he was the arm of the Lord? Israel's God has made bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that the ends of the earth can now see God's salvation. The third loudspeaker has, again, been turned up too loud in most Western Christian readings. This is the story of Jesus as the story of how the church was founded. Some traditional Christianity, particularly some parts of Catholicism, has read the four Gospels as the story of how Jesus gave his disciples instructions on how they were to set up and run the church. Jesus then becomes the founder of a movement and the teacher of a new ethic. And this too has bred its own reaction, as many more liberal readers seizing on parts of the story which really don't look like that, that normal over-loud church-founding reading, have declared that, no, Jesus was a good Jewish lad who would have been horrified to have a church founded in his name. Both are, of course, distortions. Once we get the first loudspeaker adjusted, we see what's going on. Jesus wasn't founding a church, because the people of God had been going ever since Abraham. And like some other Jews of the time, Jesus believed it was his vocation to bring God's people to the point of the long-awaited new exodus, the great turnaround when God would then generate, exactly as scripture had foretold, a whole new identity for his people. In scripture, this regularly included something about the nations of the world as well, either coming into worship or being subdued and put straight under Israel's anointed king. And the Gospels constantly hint at just this redefinition of God's people. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also adds a warning. The sons of the kingdom might well be ejected. Many who are first will be last and vice versa. God's people are being turned inside out and upside down. At the same time, therefore, what is sometimes seen as Jesus' ethical teaching, which some have made the center of everything, is much, much more than that. It's not less than that, it's more than that. It is an entire agenda for renewed humanity. This is what it'll look like when hearts are renewed, when minds are transformed from the inside out. 
And it is also an entire agenda for renewing humanity. That is God's project to renew the world through his faithful people. Notice, for instance, how some at least of the Beatitudes work. They are not simply promising God's blessing on the pure in heart, the meek, etc. They are promising God's blessing through such people. This, in other words, is how God is becoming king. Through the meek, the peacemakers, the heart-pure people, the hungry-for-justice people. In other words, and this is part of the answer to the look out of the window, watch the television, it's obvious God isn't king jibe, when God wants to take his power and reign, putting the world to rights as he'd always promised, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken-hearted, the crushed in spirit. And they will do, in humility and hope, the tasks of world renewing, medicine, education, justice and mercy, through which the living God is transforming the world. Face it, we in the West have grown so used to hearing the standard critique of the church from the sneering post-enlightenment world. Christianity is part of the problem, not part of the solution. We've been hearing that since at least Schleiermacher's day, cultured despisers and so on. But actually the world today is, I'll put my hand up and say it, a totally different place from what it was in the first century. And that transformation is due in large measure, not only, but in large measure, to the vision of the Sermon on the Mount being worked out in concrete history. Very interesting, the whole human rights movement for which you, Lady Principal, have worked so hard. Um, as the Pope said in his address to the UN exactly four years ago this month, the whole human rights tradition as we currently know it has deep roots in much older European Christianity with the warning that if you cut off the roots, you may find that the fruit isn't so fresh after all. That's a whole other story. But the point in the Gospels is that God has decisively launched his kingdom project in and through Jesus. And when we turn this loudspeaker down from its shrill, oh, Jesus just came to set up the church volume, we can see why. The story the Gospels tell is the story of how through Jesus, the creator God was beginning this new phase of his world-renewing project. Those who read the story like that will find themselves caught up in it, not just as beneficiaries, but as agents. The fourth loudspeaker is another one that's usually been turned off altogether. All four Gospels tell the story of Jesus as the story of how Israel's God defeated the powers of the world and the dark power that stands behind them all. In the Gospels, by strong implication, Jesus is enthroned, however paradoxically, and everyone else, from Caesar downwards and right back to the evil one, the accuser himself, is dethroned. One way of drawing attention to this, a way which I hope C.H. Dobb would have approved of, is to note that in the first century AD, the Gospels were not the only narratives that told of how a centuries-long story had reached a surprising and royal conclusion. Rome had long prided itself on being a republic. But now, Horace, Livy, and above all, Virgil, had told the long story of Rome as a story which had reached an astonishing and unexpected and transformative climax in Augustus Caesar, the Lord of the world, the Son of God. Now, the Gospels, drawing on Israel's much longer story, brought that story to its astonishing and transformative climax in Jesus, the true Son of God, 
the true Lord of the world. In Luke's opening sequence, we see that contrast. Augustus lifts a finger in Rome, and Mary and Joseph head off for the town where Israel's Messiah was to be born. Matthew, meanwhile, has Herod the Great brooding over the birth of Jesus, but being outwitted by the Magi. And then his lackluster son, Herod Antipas, brooding over Jesus' public career, but unable to stop Jesus being enthroned as king of the Jews. Mark has the centurion at the cross mutter in surprise, this man really was the son of God. And he must have known the implication, since the word son of God was printed on every coin in his pocket. That title of Caesar. John's Jesus declares that the ruler of this world is cast out so that he, Jesus, will be able to draw all people to himself. And in the most spectacular scene in all political theology, I tested this out on Professor Chris Rowland yesterday and he agreed that this was indeed the case. In John 18 and 19, Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate, the representative of God's kingdom, confronting the representative of Caesar's kingdom, arguing about kingdom and truth and power wonderful scene before Pilate is then shown to be without real power he is outwitted by the chief priests while Jesus goes to his death to unveil in action the all-powerful love of God and in each case each gospel the resurrection then seals the point Jesus is raised as Messiah Lord of the world son of God in power says Paul now possessing all authority in heaven and on earth says Matthew Nobody reading the four Gospels in the first century, I think, could miss the point. We think of this point as political only because we in the modern Western world have separated out the so-called religious from the so-called political in a way which is totally counterintuitive to anyone in the ancient world and indeed many parts of the modern if the Gospels tell the story of how God became king, they do so in order to demonstrate not only an alternative king, but an alternative mode of kingdom. As Jesus explains to James and John in Mark 10, the rulers of the world do power one way, we're going to do it a different way. If anyone wants to be great, they must be the servant of all, because the Son of Man didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what happens in that saying? You get the atonement theology, as it were, inside the political theology. Or to put it another way, the way God rescues people from sin and death is by overthrowing the powers that had held them captive. And the way he does that is not with superior firepower of the same kind. Goodness knows we've made that mistake again and again in the West. But with a different kind of power altogether. The power that is let loose transformatively in the world through Jesus' death and resurrection, and which will work till every knee bows at his name. This fourth loudspeaker then joins up with the first, and it's no accident that those two have both been turned off. When you cut the link between the gospel and the story of Israel, you miss out the challenge between Jesus' kingdom and Caesar's. The Old Testament book in which all of this is summed up is, of course, Daniel. Again, Dodd wrote a lot about Daniel. Caird wrote a lot about Daniel. Daniel is central for the evangelist's view of Jesus. Jesus predicts his own vindication after suffering in language taken from Daniel 7. The Son of Man comes on the clouds, not from heaven to earth, but in vindication from earth 
to heaven. I once said this in a lecture in Regent College, Vancouver, and afterwards an angry young Baptist came up to me and said, in my Bible it says he will come on the clouds, and you said he's going. And I said, well, sorry, the Greek is a common on, which could either mean going or coming. And he said, well, now I don't know whether I'm coming or going. So um, this, is, this is controversial, but if you read Daniel 7 and read how it is being read in the first century, you'll see the point. Daniel is about the vindication of the Son of Man, the representative of God's people. At that moment, he is simultaneously David trouncing the Philistines and Adam ruling over the animals. This is the point of the kingdom of God. Israel's God is becoming king over the nations of the world, and through him, humankind itself is reclaiming its sovereign rule over creation. When you turn all four loudspeakers to their proper volume, that is the quadraphonic music you will begin to hear. So what happens when we learn to listen to the Gospels in these four ways all together? We discover in a new way that the story the evangelists are telling is a single story, which can't be broken up, as we've so often done, into Jesus talking about the kingdom over here, and then Jesus dying a saving death over there. It's the same story. The shadow of the cross falls over the early pages of Jesus' kingdom ministry, and the kingdom meaning is built solidly and intricately into the narrative of the cross. The kingdom, in other words, is launched in Jesus' ministry, but established through his death and resurrection. Or, to put it the other way around, the cross does not achieve something other than the kingdom, but rather it is the victory of the kingdom bringer. By separating these two strands out has been done again and again and again in popular readings right across different strands of the church and in scholarly readings, sometimes even generating various scholarly methods. We have belittled both the texts and the Christianity we've tried to build on them. In particular, we have capitulated again to the Enlightenment's agenda. I realize I seem to be having a kind of anti-Enlightenment rant. That's, that's not my intention. I, I do not want to be operated on by a pre-Enlightenment dentist, or indeed by a postmodern dentist, thank you very much. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have the best that post-Enlightenment technology can... I mean, the Enlightenment has brought enormous great blessings to our world. We should thank God for them. But those same Enlightenment thinkers in the 18th century were eager to neutralize this meaning and message of the gospel so as to launch the brave new world in which Europe and America had come of age. Oh, Jesus is a great teacher on the one hand. Fine, read Thomas Jefferson. Jesus dying to rescue people out of the world on the other. Read some of the great preachers of the time. That's fine. We can deal with those. That creates just the hermeneutical space for the Enlightenment's project to get off the ground. Since they thought it's obvious that the kingdom didn't happen with Jesus, we can get on with, with building it ourselves and let Jesus give people a private spirituality in the present and the hope of a blissful immortality in the future. And the churches of the West, by and large, have cheerfully colluded with this agenda. The misreadings I spoke of earlier at both popular and scholarly levels merely instantiate this split of kingdom and cross. What happens when we put them back together? When we read Kingdom and Cross together with the music from the first loudspeaker in our ears, we hear those great stories of Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms, Isaiah, Zechariah, Daniel, all coming to their head. This is where it was going. Israel's calling to be the light of the world. That calling narrowed down to one man, the Messiah, and the Messiah turning out to be the servant, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. 
The same split that has divided kingdom from cross in the reading of the Gospels has divided Isaiah 52, kingdom, from Isaiah 53, cross. It's time to put them back together again. And when we do that, we find cross and resurrection saying with Exodus, this is what it looks like when Israel's God comes at last in his glory to save his people and lead them to their inheritance. And with Genesis, this is what it looks like when the creator finally sorts out the mess in the garden by rescuing the humans who are supposed to be looking after it for him. There's a whole entire agenda going on there, ecology, etc. When we read Kingdom and Cross together with the music from the second loudspeaker, therefore, we see in particular the way in which some of those great scriptural promises have been fulfilled. Israel's God always said he would come back. He would come back to be the shepherd of his people, come back in person to rescue them, to dwell in their midst, not in a house of timber and stone, but in and as a human being. Daniel 7, again, thrones are placed in heaven. Either that is a terrible compromise of monotheism itself, somebody else sitting alongside God, or somehow, as some second century rabbis saw, the one who now shares the throne of God is one for whom that is and always was appropriate. The Gospels are all hinting in ways far more subtle than most books on Christology have realized that this is what we should have expected it to look like when Israel's God came back. Not in a blaze of glory, not in a pillar of cloud and fire, not enthroned on the chariot with the whirling wheels, but in and as the human being who would feed his flock like a shepherd, gathering the lambs in his arms and gently leading those with young, and then giving his life for the sheep. The proper way to understand gospel Christology is to hold together kingdom and cross, to listen for the music from that second loudspeaker, and to stand in awe. And this is where the story becomes truly scary, because when we listen to the third loudspeaker and then ask the question about kingdom and cross, we discover that the Gospels are full of signs that Jesus' followers are themselves to be not only kingdom people, but also cross people. If anyone wants to come after me, Jesus says they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There is a sense in which Jesus' vocation to the cross is, of course, unique, but there is another sense in which when he calls the disciples to carry forward his work of kingdom inauguration, he is thereby calling them to enlist in a battle which will involve for them as well suffering of various kinds up to and including martyrdom. That theme right, runs right across the New Testament and on, of course, into the second and third centuries. The church consists of Jesus' followers and is therefore constituted as the kingdom and cross people. The people who work for the progress of God's kingdom precisely through their own suffering and shame. The people who bear suffering and shame because they're working for God's kingdom. And you see, this draws the sting at once of any sense of easygoing kingdom triumphalism. Oh, we're kingdom people, so we're sorting the world out. No, you only do that strangely, paradoxically, the same way Jesus did. This continues to be a massive challenge for all of us, particularly in the moderately comfortable Western churches. Five minutes spent talking to a Christian from other parts of the world, whether it's Burma, China, Pakistan, or many, many other places, would remind us of the reality of what the New Testament is talking about. And the challenge, of course, comes not least because of the normally silent fourth loudspeaker. When Jesus confronts Pilate and puts him decisively in the wrong about kingdom, truth, and power, and then goes to the cross to embody 
that truth, that kingdom and that power. He is setting the pattern for the work to which his followers are then called. In John 16, there's a very tricky passage where Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I used to read that passage and think, well, not quite sure I understand it, but it'll be exciting when the Spirit does that stuff. And it's only comparatively recently that I realized with a shock that the way the Spirit does what Jesus says the Spirit is going to do is by enabling Jesus' followers to do it through the church. The church, in other words, is not just a spectator when the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will do it through the witness of Jesus' disciples. So we come back and put the four speakers together. The story of the renewed Israel is the story of how God defeats human arrogance. But it's the story of how the suffering and the meek and the merciful and the hungry for justice people actually take over the world. That's how it's done. It would be possible to spell all this out at much greater length. Of course, that's just what I've done in the book. It would be possible to reread the Gospels one more time, looking at that great sequence from Jesus' baptism all the way to the title on the cross. It would be possible to look at Jesus' predictions of the coming of the kingdom, and so on and so forth. It would be possible to talk about eschatology being inaugurated but not yet consummated, in dialogue not least with C.H. Dodd's realized eschatology agenda. For the early church, the kingdom came with power when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. And it's only because so much scholarship of the last 200 years has rejected the resurrection that it's put so much weight onto the second coming and then has said that there was a problem that the second coming didn't happen. Actually, that problem is largely a modern scholarly construct. Second coming still matters enormously. Eschatology has been inaugurated, not consummated. We do not build the kingdom by our own efforts. We build for the kingdom. And our tools for that building continue to be the cross-shaped ones we learn from Jesus himself. But in particular, I just want to make two brief final points, one each about a central doctrine of the faith. We have tended to focus on two doctrines about Jesus, his incarnation and his atoning work. Now, the four Gospels, against what many have supposed, all believe firmly in what we call the incarnation. The Jesus they offer is the personal embodiment of Israel's God, not the God of popular imagination, but still. But this is, as it were, the key in which the music is set rather than the tune which is being sung. Go figure. The melody is not, look, Jesus is divine, but, look, here is God becoming king. We have substituted the static belief in Jesus' divinity for the active belief in what the incarnate Son was actually doing. It is possible to tick all the creedal boxes but miss the larger reality to which they point. Rather like a child who, being faced with a follow-the-dots puzzle, forgets that you're supposed to follow the dots in the order that the numbers say and manages to create, shall we say, an elephant rather than a donkey or vice versa. That analogy works better in America where those have particular significance. <laughs> what we need in the next generation is creedal Christians who know what the four Gospels are about. 
so too with the atonement. When we read the Gospels like this, it's impossible to imagine that Jesus died on the cross simply so we could pass safely from this world to the non-spatio-temporal heaven, heaven imagined by Platonists. The Gospels are eager to tell us that Jesus died precisely as King of the Jews, the one who brings to its triumphant conclusion the long story of Yahweh's victory over the powers of the world. I know all the formulae about atonement theories. They're all basically more or less true, provided you hear them in the full biblical context. We are not saved for our own sake, simply to be with God forever. They are all those theories, they are signposts to the larger reality of new covenant and new creation, which are being launched throughout the gospel stories. God saves people in order to work through them. God wants his world to be ruled by humble, forgiven sinners. God wants to put the world right, so he puts people right, so that they can be putting right people for the world. That's how justification by faith and the agenda of justice actually go together. God wants creation to be renewed by people who are themselves renewed. That's the story the Gospels tell. By and large, we've all missed it. There is much more I could say, but you have to read the book. There is in particular a lot that could be said about the ways in which historical scholarship might go about things slightly differently once we grasp this bigger, complex story. There is also a warning to be given against those who assume that by murmuring the words creed and canon, they can let themselves off the hook of engaging with what the canon actually says and rest content in doctrines which, however true, point to the central gospel claim, but don't spell it out. All that needs to be thought through. But let me conclude with this. We can't read the gospels merely for information about all of this. They're not designed for that. They do not invite fly-on-the-wall reading. They are like a musical score which demands to be played. They are like a great drama which, yeah, you can read it to yourself in bed if you like, but it'll only come to life when a group of actors gets together and puts it on on stage. This is why the church has always read the Gospels in public, and particularly at the Eucharist, and why in most traditions the church stands up at that moment. When you take Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in your hands, you are invoking the presence of the Lord of whom they speak. We rise to greet our King. Only in a church that has forgotten what the Gospels are all about and has called something else the Gospel could people suppose that they could safely treat the Gospels as just the backstory for the real proclamation. It's time to put first things first once more and to read the Gospels as what they are, as what they truly will become again and again for those who take them seriously. The story of how God became King on earth as in heaven, in Jesus the Messiah and his death and resurrection. And that kind of reading, ipso facto, invokes the power of the Spirit for the mission which the Gospels themselves were written to direct and to sustain. Thank you very much.